Welcome to the third episode of the Politic Pod podcast. You're joined today by me, Ben, and Nasif. And today, in this episode, uh, I missed the hottest week on British record, reaching a high temperature of 40.3 degrees Celsius. Uh, I'm sure everyone has experienced it, and I must say it was hard. It's far worse than being on holiday. And so we're going to talk all about climate change and we're going to go on a little bit to the conservative leadership race. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to talk about the science aspects behind it, but we're going to talk about net zero targets. Uh, and then we're going to talk a bit about Extinction Rebellion and City Britain and those sorts of groups. But first, it's time for a quiz. Nasif, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Two weeks ago, I asked you to name as many Conservative MPs as you could. This time, it's going to be a little bit harder, but I am going to ask you to name as many Labour MPs as you can. And you have 15 seconds for this in three, two, one, go. Sir Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner, uh, Chion Wura, she's my local MP, um... Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Ed Miliband, I believe. I think he's mm. still there. Uh, oh, that's it. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not so great at naming Labour Party MPs. Yeah, I, I think it's much harder to name Labour MPs because they haven't been government for twelve years, where the Conservatives have. Uh, yeah. But yeah, five. That's a decent number. And you're all right about Ed Miliband. He's actually the shadow secretary for the environment, which of course brings us on to our topics today very conveniently. So, uh, congratulations on the quiz. That, that's a respectable number once more. And let's talk about Net Zero 2050. So, Kevin Badenoch, one of the candidates eliminated this week in the Conservative leadership race, uh, she pledged to scrap Net Zero 2050 targets, uh, citing the effect it could have on the poor parts of the UK which are in most need of development. So what are your thoughts, Nassif? Should we keep Net Zero 2050? Is it important to do that? In my view, I feel that we, we should keep Net Zero 50. Uh, we should keep it as a target in order to really push Britain um, towards the forefront of being um, one of those nations that, walk, that, that works towards... Um, solving climate change, really. Uh, and, and that should be one of our top priorities. But I think, I think um, Badenoch raises a good point. That is, yes, it will be quite costly. And um, most likely it'll come through taxes, which will affect poorer parts of um, the country more so, um, such as the Northeast, for example. But, um, I mean, you, one, one could argue that perhaps really, um, environmental environmental friendly technology should be invested in wealthier parts of the country that can afford it. But one of the arguments against it, of course, is that this is a national project, so everybody across the board, regardless of where they live, is going to have to pay up for it. So I, I think it's um, interesting to consider the costs of trying to go towards a more environmentally friendly society. But um, I don't think that that in itself um, should justify the complete abolition of, of our climate change goals, which are, of course, um, have been neatly put into the uh, net zero by 2050 goal. 
Uh, you raised some very good points there. And, but there are some critics I might say that China and India, amongst other countries, are not planning to hit net zero by 2050. They're planning by 2070, I believe, for those two countries. And other ones, I think Russia might be 2060. Uh, I might be slightly wrong uh, with those figures, but they're around, they're not 2050. I know that much. So is it just up to the UK? Are we doing enough? And is it just other countries that aren't doing their part, being more reluctant to fight climate change? I think that's a, I think that's a brilliant question, really, because um, it raises um, a few pertinent points. Uh, the first is the truth. The first is that, well, it is true that developing countries such as China, such as India, um, to some extent, uh, even Russia, uh, um, are producing a lot of um, uh, greenhouse gases. They contribute a lot to um, um, the, the products from fossil fuels, and uh, China especially, very, very heavily reliant on coal factories. But one I, I think it's important to consider the fact that these are developing countries and that Britain, America um, and, and other, other countries in the, in the now developed world were once at that stage 100, uh, 150 years ago. And that really we should um, also remember that actually developed countries, whilst of course working towards a greener society, still to this day contribute um, per person more than um, those in the developing world. And I, I, I think it's, it's interesting because um, are we trying to turn this into a collaborative effort or a competitive effort? Are we trying to say, right, we want to beat China and India in terms of becoming a greener society? Or do we want to work with them and try and, um, you know, say, all right, one goal for one country, one goal for another country. And so far, that's exactly what's been happening. I, I, if I um, may provide my particular opinion, that is, um, I think it should be a collaborative effort. I do recognize that um, developing countries produce a lot um, of fossil fuels and that um, regardless of, of it being per capita, just generally China and India produce far more uh, greenhouse gases than we do. But, but I think being able to collaborate internationally um, to solve climate change is far more important than saying, right, we need to be ahead of these countries in terms of um, beating climate change, because ultimately climate change is uh, an international uh, issue. And um, in my view, whilst China and India should strive to um, should, should, should strive to make greener societies, at the same time, we should perhaps be um, a bit more lenient. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's a lot harder for them countries to uh, decarbonize, if you will. And you bring up a really good point there about global warming, because the causes are global, the consequences are global, but the response also must be global. As I said, this is an international thing. It's not restricted to one country or one region, even one continent. It's every single country in the world, and we must all do our part. Uh, as, but there's, of course, a lot of debate below talked about Kerry Badenoch about the impacts of that. For example, the green levies uh, have had a bit of a negative economic impact, as have fuel tax. So, uh, like, you know, that's a debate that's always going to rage on. 
but many will say at the end of the day, long-term thinking, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, but you did mention a thing about competing with each other, and this isn't the same thing, but Tom Tugan wrote an op-ed, I think it was a few months ago, talking about how he believes that having green economy competitiveness between European nations uh, can really fight climate change. And this is a really interesting point about creating green jobs, stuff such as in renewable energy. And me and Asif were just discussing before this episode, uh, some ideas, for example, and the government is pushing this to like put the renewable energy factories or like all the green jobs or at least the majority of them in the poor parts of the country, the areas that do need leveling up. Uh, and I think that's important to do. And it can not only scale up the different, the poor economies in our country, but also by climate change, it's gonna be a big sector that will grow and it has a positive buy effect. Others, of course, absorbing carbon dioxide from the air or releasing less of it. So yeah, that's extremely important to do. Uh, but this is something that could be suggested. It would be incredibly difficult to do, albeit. But what are your thoughts on perhaps having legally binding targets? Because at the moment, most countries are not on track for reaching their uh, carbon dioxide levels by 2050 or whatever year they've specified. Are legally binding targets possible? maybe a good option for countries or do you think it's just too far-fetched they will never agree to it i think i mean that i have to admit is a very very interesting um uh, proposition you've put there i i think right from the get-go i can say that legally binding um targets for climate change providing climate change that is I, I, I would say those, those aren't really a good idea. Because um, um, let's be quite honest about this. How would you sanction it? And this is a question everybody's going to have. Um, for all, if we were to hypothetically draw up an argument of nations being legally bound internationally to their um, goals regarding fighting global warming and fighting climate change uh, and regarding using uh, more sustainable uh, sources of energy how would one sanction it if those weren't met and what's even worse to consider perhaps is what if those targets aren't met but it's not the fault of the nation involved simply because the goals that were once perceived as achievable have for some unforeseen circumstances become quite um have become too idealistic and um perhaps a bit unrealistic for a nation to achieve and, and once again I, I refer back to um, nations in the developing world india china um uh, you know vietnam and, and and many nations in africa they are still on the path to industrialize to develop to modernize and they're in an interesting position where, of course, you know, they want to impose laws regarding um, fighting climate change. These nations do want to have greener um, ways of living, so to speak. But at the same time, quite frankly, they cannot afford the means to become more sustainable. And so I think it'd be not only quite unfair 
on the developing world, but actually unfair really on everybody to impose internationally unsanctionable, let's be quite honest, uh, and relatively um, unreasonable um, goals on climate change. If, if without legally binding um, international laws, countries are failing to meet their climate change goals, can we really expect it to be any better with anything legally binding? And once again, I resurface the point, if those goals aren't achieved, how can we sanction against it? In my view, I, I would say we can't. Yeah, uh, you bring up some really interesting and notable points there. Uh, but there are many groups, particularly from the youth like we are, uh, such as Extinction Rebellion or Insular Britain that have become almost universally hated within Britain at this point. Uh, but th that is quite controversial. What do you think about them groups? For example, Extinction Rebellion only on Tuesday, I believe, in the midst of the heat wave in London, I think it was, uh, went to News UK, which is Rupert Murdoch's British media group containing the Daily Mail, the Sun, etc., everything that he owns, and started painting stuff to the windows, pin posters. Uh, you've seen them at JP Morgan, trying to smash windows with the nails. And then Insulate Britain were another group, uh, this, about this time last year or slightly later, uh, gluing themselves to the roads and causing hours of traffic. Is that the right way to combat climate change? Absolutely not. I, look, I, I, I have to get this out that. I, I mean, I, I want climate change gone. I, I want, and I, like so many other people, regardless of their political views, we don't, you know, we, we want a greener society and we want to work towards it. I am vehemently against any action that is taken to slow down climate policies without any particular valid justification. But, and, I, and, and this is a big but, really, which is that, Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain are ultimately extremist, in my opinion, really. I, I find them to be very, not just annoying, but I think they're quite destructive because they've now deterred people from supporting fighting climate change. They've now uh, said, this is what climate protesting looks like, when in reality, that's not climate protesting. That's just a bunch of angry and quite, quite clearly insane people gluing themselves to the road. I mean, let's be quite honest, Ben, what good is that going to do? It's not going to do anything to solve climate change. I think uh, there was one particular case where uh, back in London, a few months ago, uh, some extinction rebellion, I think it was, no, 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 it was Insulate Britain and some of its members glued themselves to the M25 where there was an ambulance with a man who, was, um, who had a stroke and they ended up becoming paralyzed because the ambulance wasn't able to move because, you know, one of the Insulate Britain members had glued themselves to the road. And I, I, upon hearing that, I was quite horrified. I was like, is this really what Insulate Britain stands for? Because they claim they don't, but I, I'm gonna be honest with you. It is apparent to me and to most other people in British society now that the way in which Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain have been protesting is not only inappropriate and ineffective, but actually disruptive, disruptive, and quite frankly, incredibly antisocial. As you said, I mean, smashing 
windows. Well, what's going to happen is you smash a window, it'll take fossil fuels to produce another window. It kind of defeats the point, doesn't it? It's a small thing, but if you do it on a, on a daily basis, as Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain seem to want to do, I, I, I think um, they're really shooting themselves in the foot here. And it saddens me because I want action to be taken against climate change. Likewise, most people do. But the issue is, is now many have been deterred. Many now are sick and tired of hearing it day in, day out, and are now absolutely frustrated at these groups that claim to be fighting climate change. And for many people, if that is what fighting climate change means, quote unquote, I'm afraid it's, it's not going to be very enticing when the day comes that we actually need to enforce policies to fight climate change, which very much saddens me. But I think um, Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britons and other such groups um, are a terrible representation of what people really should do to fight climate change. And I think those groups are not genuine people trying to fight off climate change or trying to, um, you know, allow insulation or proper insulation into people's homes. I think they're just, uh, in my view at least, extremist groups that have used antisocial behavior as tools to hurt people and in the process justify it in a very devious manner by saying they're doing it for a good cause. It's, it's in, in, in my view, it's quite evil, really. Mm, it's inexcusable. And this was some time ago, but Extinction Rebellion were gluing themselves to the trains on the tube station. That's just going to force more people to use cars. Holding a motor race, that, that releases a ton of carbon dioxide and other fossil fuels, while the car exhausts are running due to idleness for hours. I know, I mean, of course, that's incredibly hypocritical and supporters of these movements, though they are few, will tell you you're missing the point. But you can't just defend these actions saying that you have a good message. Yes, you might have a good message, but you're getting mixed up in extremist actions. And that's what they are. Um, Ed Balls, a few weeks ago, I think it was Ed Balls, uh, of course, former shadow chancellor, he called them terrorists. Now, they're not terrorists in the same vein as, say, ISIS or any other sorts of groups are. But nonetheless, I don't know if these people that support them really truly grasp the destruction they're causing and the negative impacts that turning people away from climate change action when people think of you know climate protesters many people will want to think people that just want action against climate change but now it's getting mixed up in these extreme groups that are incredibly disruptive and damaging to the uk and these exist all over the world let's not forget that but their main targets, along with governments, are also private companies. Do you think private companies are doing enough to solve climate change? Oh, now that is, uh, that certainly is a, a, a tough question. Um, do I think private companies are doing enough to, to fight climate change? Well, um, let, let's consider both sides. On the one hand, you have private companies investing in green energy. You have many which are now resorting to solar panels, albeit solar panels are indeed relatively expensive. Um, you, um, we, you know, you have companies that are trying to use paper as opposed to plastic that that 
um, encourage um, like paper cups, for example, if you're if you're in a workplace, um, and that that also have means of recycling. It's hard to say because I mean, it depends really. I mean, it depends on how big the businesses are. It depends on um, what sort of businesses they are, what materials they require. I think, admittedly, um, I, I have to admit, I, I don't know enough to be able to answer that question in full, but it's certainly an interesting question. There, are, there have been accusations that private companies are still to this day um, not as, um, so to speak, green as they should be. Uh, and to some extent, I agree. But I have also um, observed a great number of companies actually saying, right, okay, let's try and be a bit more sustainable, even if they're not fully sustainable, even if you know they still have issues regarding the uh, carbon footprint um, that they uh, that they have. Uh, I, I would say there's a general movement in 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 you know the the private sector to um, go green um, and. Uh, yeah, I, I, th I think it's a bit of a half and half as of now. So I can't fully answer that. I, I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't know enough, I have to admit. But no, it's, it's a very, very interesting question. And I think it'll become a, um, a far, far more important question as we move on into the future. Mm. Um, very interesting. And I guess also kind of what you're saying, many companies have pledged to reach I'd like to be more sustainable. Uh, some of them even pledged to become net zero, possibly even carbon negative. And many of those include airline companies or oil companies, the ones that have the largest carbon impact. And some of those are massive. And that's because of public pressure, in my opinion, not, not radical protests like we just discussed a few minutes ago, but just general public consensus. And I, I don't think every CEO of every company is hell-bent on damaging the planet through climate change i'm pretty sure they have they have morality themselves people forget that these days <laughs> uh so that's all about today i thought it was great to talk about difference of, about climate change but now we're going to discuss a bit of the elephant in the room and that's the conservative leadership race I wanted to give this week for a little bit of a break because we've discussed it to death for the past two weeks. And Nasif, did you watch those two debates that happened in the past week since we last spoke? I've watched, I, I, I've watched part of them, not, not entirely, but I've watched parts of them, yeah. Yeah, so the Channel 4 one, which was on Friday last week, this uh, actually aired before this ep the episode two came out, and that was fairly all right. Had a little bit of attacks here and there, but the format was really good. Uh, many candidates stood out, particularly Tom Tugendhat, who well, he got uh, booted out in the first round since then. Uh, but then the ITV one on Sunday was incredibly destructive. There's no way to raise up on that, especially Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss attacking each other. But nearly every candidate really just, I think they let themselves down. And I mean, that's no help to the format. Each candidate got asked another question. For example, Rishi Sunak got asked Liz Truss, what do you regret more, being a Remainer or a Liberal Democrat? Intended to come off as a funny joke, but it kind of had a sinister undertone when it was said in, uh, on TV. But it just showed real 
uh, conflicts within the party and divisions. And this is the thing I was thinking, many people talk about the Conservative Party being disunited. When Theresa May was Prime Minister, yes, the party was disunited between the May loyalists and the ERG and the ones that opposed her. When Johnson resigned, it wasn't because of a particular pressure group. It was just disparate members of the party, including some of Johnson's closest allies, like Priti Patel, just saying, enough's enough. We can't go on like this. So there was still unity in my eyes, uh, but there, not like what well, happened three years ago. But after seeing that debate, there was incredible disunity. And the party, I have to remember, their colleagues, their when they're attacking each other, the impact that has the public, the entire nation is watching these debates. Of course, the entire nation isn't voting. They're observing it. And many of them will feel, I think, after that debate, regardless of who the prime minister is, of course, the general election is uh, probably going to be two years away, if not sooner. But this is very destructive for the Conservative Party. And that actually leads us on to some polling figures, which I'll get to actually in a second. But I'll ask you this first. What do you think of the final two candidates, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss? Now that's, uh, yes, I, I think um, both of them, um, in all fairness, I'm not very, I'm not really all that surprised to see the two of them um, in, in the final two, given the fact that um, this is, of course, the voting is restricted within the Conservative Party, and um, most Conservative um, MPs are going to trust um, the senior two MPs who, who have formerly been part of um, a government um, beforehand, uh, as opposed to um, Kemi Badenoch, Tom Tugendhat, and uh, Penny Morden, who, um, who, whilst in my eyes were very uh, promising candidates, um, didn't win. And I suspect simply because um, Conservative MPs would not have trusted them in having enough experience, or simply would have just felt that Truss and uh, Sunak were perhaps um, less of a risk, so to speak. I think. Um, both of them are very interesting characters. They seem now to be very different, which is uh, something that I hadn't realized when both were part of Boris Johnson's government. I, I, always, I, I had always assumed, and I'm sure many other people did, the similarities between the cabinet members of Johnson's government. But now, now we do sort of see the real disparities um, between Truss and uh, Sunak. Sunak, of course, wants to keep taxes and, and wants to maintain the fact that, you know, we don't have enough money and, and we can't keep borrowing, whereas um, Truss for, um, wants to uh, cut taxes and uh, decrease um, uh, spending as well. And I, and I think that's just one example out of many of the, many of the uh, differences between them. They're interesting candidates, uh, I have to say. Um, if I had to suspect, I would suspect um, Sunak might come out victorious, but I might be very, very, very wrong on that. Um, no less, just um, intriguing, intriguing candidates indeed. Um, back just on your point there about Sunak winning, if I had to be a betting man, which I'm not because I'm underage, I would bet on Sunak to win. I think he'll build up some momentum in the next few weeks. Currently, Truss is leading on him based on Tory members polling, only slightly, uh, but they're notoriously hard to poll. But I guess we'll see it'll be incredibly close. But this is the problem. These two candidates 
I do struggle to see once one candidate wins, whether that be Truss or Sunak, the whole party rallying around that candidate, like what happened with Boris Johnson a few years ago. If Sunak wins, he's going to face a big opposition within his party through likes of, well, particularly the RG, including Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees Morgand, of course, our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who's apparently been working to try and get Sunak, well, to prevent him from becoming Prime Minister, allegedly, but it, it's well known that he would prefer to have Liz Truss. Uh, he feels really uh, betrayed by Rishi Sunak. Arguably, his res uh, resignation led to Boris's downfall as Prime Minister. Uh, in my opinion on that, it was doomed to happen whenever, of course, Boris and Rishi uh, clashed at times. That's well documented. But I don't think the Prime Minister should be making a play in this contest. He's not said anything publicly, which is, of course, his uh, constitutional role. Well, not his constitutional role. It's just the standard thing to do. But it is well known he's trying to work against him. I hope that doesn't affect anything. I can't see an effect in anything to the members themselves. Of course, he's a lot, close, lot closer to the MPs than he is to the members. So what's going to happen for these final two candidates? We want to give a bit of a break uh, this week. So next week, we will do a deep dive into Rishi Sunak, his background, his policies, and what sort of prime minister he could be. And then the week after that, we'll do the same thing for Liz Truss. And this, I'm going to talk now about the polling figures. And I want to clarify that these polling figures are very early and normally a prime minister enjoys a honeymoon period once they're elected. That's why Theresa May called a general election. And that also informed Boris Johnson in calling a general election shortly after they were appointed and before the star dates, well, the five years after the previous one. And I can't see this happening in two years. I want to clarify that because these are incredibly stark numbers. So normally just the weekly figures, but this time we're going to do the polling figures with Rishi Sunak as a leader and then with Liz Truss as the leader. So this comes from uh, Oprah's politics or Oprah's politics. Um, apologies if I mispronounce that. So if Rishi Sunak as conservative leader I want to bear in mind these are preliminary figures. Labour would be on 37%. The Conservatives would be on 25%, which is down 20% since the 2019 election. The Lib Dems on 15 the Greens on 10 and Reform UK on 4%. With Liz Truss, it would be extremely similar. So Labour on 37 the Conservatives on 25 Lib Dems on 16 Greens on 9 and Reform UK on 3 But this is the thing to bear in mind and this is what would be the seats because that's ultimately what matters what percentage they get it doesn't really matter that much for example uh Theresa may's infamous loss of a majority she got almost the same percentage of votes as tony blair did in his landslide so it's about how many constituencies they can be victorious in uh so these are put into electoral calculus and this is the stark numbers so with Rishi Sunak as leader, the Conservatives would have, where's it here? One second. I can't see, oh, here it is. The Conservatives would fall to 193 vote, 193 seats. Labour would be on 345, Lib Dems would be on 35. 
with less trust as leader, the Conservatives would fall even further to 158 seats, with Labour on 371, the Lib Dems on 44. For the Con I don't think it will happen, but for the Conservatives to dip below 300 would be a bad, well, to lose their majority would be a bad night. To go between 300 would be quite telling. To go below 250 would be disastrous. But to dip below 200 would be catastrophic. There's no other way to put it. That would even exceed the 1997 oblivion they faced. And of course, this the numbers will probably ramp up and we're a long way away from the election. Who knows? Uh, maybe one of these candidates could win a landslide. But at the moment, it looks like the public is fed up of conservative governments. Of course, that, that, that can change. Maybe these candidates can do really good work of next two years. But the feeling again now is that Conservatives will lose the next election. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think I first have to, um, I think I first have to react to the, the information. I mean, that's quite shocking, really. Less than 200 projected seats if a general election were to be called. Um, I mean, it, it, it's pretty shocking figures, really. Um, I think, yeah, given that um, the Conservatives have really um, dipped in popularity uh, and that Labour seems to be on the track to become the next government, if a hypothetical general election were to be called. Uh, really, Ben, I mean, I, I can't say anything else but um, shock at those results. It's quite, it's really really interesting i mean political developments like this um at least from from what i understand have haven't been seen since since the 90s um which let's be quite honest is um is pretty uh worrying i guess from the point of view of the conservatives what i suspect is that um the yes who, whoever gets um, elected as prime minister will try and uh, get into cabinet MPs who they know will not be scandalous and will probably do their best to re-campaign across, um, across the, uh, the nation, um, as happened with Cameron um, after the, uh, w when he was elected in place of George Brown. Um, and of course, I think with Labour, what I suspect they'll do is they'll try and push back and say, well, you know, this is a... Um, and, and, and I presume this is what they'll say, um, which is, to summarise that is, um, they'll say, this is the Conservative government that's been leading you for the last um, decade uh, or so, and, and you can't trust them. They've lost their way, and they've now lost their integrity. And I presume that'll be Labour's argument. As for the other parties, um, the Lib Dems, the Greens, and quite surprisingly, Reform UK, um, I think for those parties, really, they'll keep continue pushing their usual message, I presume, because it seems to be that um, it's, it's, go it's going quite successfully for them. But yeah, I uh, really, I, th I think if the Conservatives want to win, they'll have to really tiptoe around and do their best to prevent a general election until they can raise their popularity, whoever the next Prime Minister is. And I think with, with Labour, what I suspect is they'll try and push for a general election they want one as soon as possible. <coughs> pardon, pardon me. And um, I presume that they'll uh, they'll want one um, 
where the Conservatives don't have much influence in Parliament. That is to say, the Conservatives have the least number of MPs. Um, and and, and g given the current projections that you've just given, uh, that that's entirely within the realm of possibility. Uh, yes, definitely. And that's exactly what Labour are saying. Of course, I can, uh, I do think if these candidates can rebuild trust, they can make some really positive work, they can rebuild that 2019 coalition. There are many in the country now that feel that the Conservatives represent them best. And at the moment, they've got their in a negative light, but I think it's easier than people would say to rebuild that trust, to rebuild that coalition, and to rebuild that majority for the next general election. And you mentioned there having some good figures in cabinet. Two uh, prime ministerial candidates got eliminated this week were Kemi Badenoch and Tom Tugendhat. I think both of those seem almost locked on to be in the next cabinet. We can discuss that later when we do get a clearer picture of who is likely to be the next prime minister, uh, assuming it doesn't go down to the wire, which would be incredibly interesting, if not uncertain. Uh, so yes. And we're approaching the end of the episode. So as we always do on this day in politics, and this was three years ago, Boris Johnson was elected leader of the Conservative Party and the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. At the time we thought this was a new phase of Britain's new era, and he could rule and leave his premiership in the same vein as Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair, reshaping Britain for decades to come. However, that's not happened in three years on, the search for his replacement is continuing and has almost concluded. And that leads, uh, so in his final words, as we close out this episode, stay tuned for next week, the review on Apple podcasts and hasta la vista, baby.